as we um, consider this morning's topic, I think we can be tempted to come to one of we can come to it with one of two uh, one of two ways. The first is that we can be uh, we, can be, we can be judgmental, right? Who would ever? I mean, who would ever do that? I mean, it's adultery. I mean, it's just this thing that maybe to us seems so foreign that those people commit adultery. The other way that we can come to it is not feeling not being judgmental, but actually feeling judged, feeling so judged. You know, this is the unpardonable sin. Right, this is the scarlet letter, the scarlet letter A that we wear around us. You're, I, I am one of, the, one of those people. But we should remember Jesus' words. Jesus in Matthew 5 said this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with him or her in his heart. See, according to Jesus, who has committed adultery? I have. And listen, adultery is far, far more common than one might think. Far more common. Not only is that true statistically in our culture, it's true in the church. In fact, it's statistically true in the church, but if you, as a a pastor, if you actually get into the lives of your people, if you actually listen to them, if you actually win their trust, and you get to a place where they are willing to share their most intimate, the fine china of their lives, their most intimate details, you will find that adultery at one point or another in a marriage is actually quite common. Affairs of the heart, full-blown affairs, whatever it may be. Why is that? Because marriage, marriage can be so amazingly beautiful. And marriage can also be so amazingly brutal. Just brutal. I want to start this morning by asking the question, what are promises for? What are promises for? It seems a strange way to begin a sermon on adultery. It's not, actually. But in our culture, promises, the notion of making and keeping promises is getting more and more foreign. Promises just seem to be dumb. Why make them? You'll probably break them. It's just, what's the point? In fact, it may surprise you to know that the divorce rate in America is actually going down. Isn't that amazing? At first, it seemed kind of encouraging. Do you know why divorce rate is going down? Few people are getting married. That's right. Why get married? Why, why bother? Most 20-somethings to whom I've ministered to or to whom I speak with, they say, why would I want, listen to this, this is really hard, Ooh. why would I want my parents' marriage? Why would I enter into that? Why be constrained? Why lose control? Why lose the freedom? Let's be honest. It's just not realistic. Marriage is just not realistic. I mean, I can remember a friend of mine, very well educated, is a British, uh, is a doctor, and he said to me, he said, you know, I give most uh, male-female relationships at most eight years, ten max. Let's be honest. By then, there's just so much dysfunction. It's best just to, to, to split ways. And so we may just briefly ask, why marriage? I mean, why even bother? Why make the promises? What are promises? I want you to hear this morning. It's a very simple idea. What are promises for? Promises protect. They protect. Let me introduce you to this idea that promises protect. They protect from the powers of chaos and confusion all around us in life. 
Promises provide peace and stability. They provide an order that enables flourishing and growth. Think of it this way. Why do we get insurance? Why do you get car insurance? Why do you get house insurance? What are the various forms of life insurance? Why do we do that? We pay a premium, and the insurance company promises to do what? They promise to pay if there's an accident. All the unknowns, the uncertainties of life, what can happen to a house, what can happen to a car, what can happen to our own lives. The idea is that we think of all the uncertainties in life, all of the, the, the ways that there are forces of chaos and confusion all around us, and the way that we can help guard ourselves to protect ourselves is if we actually make promises, promises among one another. And of course, if you've ever been in a situation where your, your insurance company won't pay, you feel what? You'll feel betrayed. Like, wait a minute, whoa, we had a deal here. Wait a minute, what's going on? And they say, oh, there's fine print, right? There's, some, you, there's a sense of betrayal. There's a sense of, wait a minute, I had, you had promised, we had made a, an arrangement, we had made promises, and now you're not living up to those promises. Or those of you kids, right? You, sometimes you, your parents may make a play date. You know, play dates, all right? You have a play date, and it's this, the play date is this promise that sooner than later, you and I are going to get together, and we're going to have fun. And that promise protects us from the possibility of loneliness. I have a friend. We're going to play together. We're going to get to know each other. It protects us from the possibility of boredom. I'm so bored. Right? And what do, what do promises do? A play date is going to be there to actually have a friend, and we can do something together and enjoy ourselves and have a great time. And of course, if they cancel at the last moment, right, parent calls or maybe a teen friend says, oh, sorry, I have to wash my dog. Oh, sorry, I have to go to the mall with another friend, right? Or classically, the friends from Phoebe says, oh, I wish I could, but I don't want to, right? People cancel, they bail, and that bailing hurts. It feels like an act of betrayal. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt was a Jewish, um, German-American uh, philosopher. She was a political theorist, and she writes these beautiful words about promises. The remedy for unpredictability, listen to this, the remedy for unpredictability, the remedy for the chaotic uncertainty of the future is contained in the faculty of making and keeping promises. When we, bind, when we bind ourselves through promises, they serve to set up, in the ocean of uncertainty, islands of security. Isn't that beautiful? She sees life as this ocean of uncertainty. And what do promises do? They, they, they create, they set up these islands of security, without which not even continuity or durability would be possible in any relationship between men. So she said promises actually create continuity. They create durability in relationships. In fact, she goes so far as to say this. This is profound. Without being bound to the fulfillment of promises, we would never be able to keep our identities. In other words, when we're not keeping promises, we're not making and, cre and creating and keeping promises, we lose a sense of who we are. So promises protect. They protect, and they protect by providing not only security, but identity a sense of who we are. I knew who I am. I made a promise to her. I made a promise to my children. There, 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 are, there are ways, there are things. I made a promise to, my, to my, my, my supervisor, whatever it might be. Promises protect by creating and providing security and identity. 
Let me ask you a question. Where do you feel safest? Where do you feel safest? Is it not with those who, who made a commitment to you? I was talking to a young 20-something recently, and I asked her, where do you feel? That very question. She said, oh, I feel safest in my family. My mom, my dad, they would never, they're, they're, they will always be there for me. So where do you feel safest? But also, to whom or what will you be true? To whom or what are you faithful? To what are you committed? And it's that commitment, it's that sense of being true to something that provides a sense of identity. And this is where our culture has taken such an incredible turn in the last 30 or 40 years. Our culture's answer to the question, to whom or to what will you be true, is increasingly become what? Myself. I am to be true to myself. But think about this. If you make promises to yourself, will you be more secure? No. You're not going to be more secure, right? Let me ask this question as well. When we are true to ourselves, does this bring a sense of identity? This is a really, this is like a hot button question in our culture today. If I'm true to myself, will I know who I am more? In fact, everyone says that you only know who you are by being true to yourself. The question is, of course, that does, that, that's not, not, not asked, is this. Which self? Your junior high self? Your high school self? Your college self? My Monday self? How I feel on Monday morning and what I feel I should do on Monday morning or when I first wake up in the morning or whatever, it's just very different from my, my, my Tuesday self or my Thursday self because we're constantly fluctuating as people. In fact, it's one of the things my daughters have seen is they go, they go to school, they go to public school, and they see um, their classmates trying to be true to themselves. And the question is, at, 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 in junior high, do you really know who you are yet? And I'm 40, almost 42. I'm not sure I know exactly who I am. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. So the question is, is it actually wise to be, try to be true to yourself? What does that even mean? So true faithfulness, true faithfulness is being committed to something or someone outside of you. That's how faithfulness has classically been defined. And this is very important. See, the ancient world defined themselves not from the outside, uh, not from the inside out, but from the outside in. And so faithfulness was like being a, 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 a part of a car, like an engine part. Right? Does that make sense? or the part of a body. What happens when an engine part is not faithful? Right? The whole engine breaks and the whole car stops. See, fidelity, fidelity, commitment was seen as something that, that took place in a broader system, in a broader organism. But today, if all I am is faithful to myself, I come and go as I please. And the notion that I'm actually a part of something bigger is completely not even considered. And that's why we, and that, it's infected our culture and it's infected the church. Today, most Christians are, listen to this, they are conversion easy, but commitment proof. Because they don't see themselves as a, as a part of an engine or as a member of a body. What happens if one of your organs decides just one day to, you know what, I'm just done with this, and shuts down? Does that part just suffer by itself? No, the whole body suffers. And that's how it is. That's how it is in marriage. 
See, marriage is a relationship created and sustained by promises. In fact, all truly fruitful relationships are promise-based. When you come into the life of the church, you make vows. And the health of a church is rooted so primarily in the keeping of those vows. When you enter into a small group, and you say, you know what, we're going to attend regularly. We're going to be committed to that small group. A small group's existence, a small group's flourishing, depends on one thing and one thing only. Commitment to that small group. But when, you know, if something comes up, just whenever or whatever, and we just do, you know, oh, I've got to wash my dog. Oh, I've got, you know, the blues are playing or whatever, and we just, we just don't even bother, that, that, that erodes the, the, the intimacy, erodes the possibility, erodes the, the commitment in the, in the group. And that's not just true for groups, small groups in our churches. It's true most fundamentally in marriage. So the seventh commandment is given to protect that relationship, to protect the promises of marriages. Why? to protect the security and identity that marriage provide, not only for the husband and wife, but especially for the children. Statistically, it is undeniable today that when you look at, at um, the, the, the laws for no-fault divorce, the cost, the overwhelming cost is always and ever the children. That is it's not the children, it's, prior, it's the women and children. No-fault divorce laws always hurt the women and children. In fact, uh, feminists today rightly speak of the feminization of poverty. And it is overwhelmingly related to male-female relationships where there is no commitment. So marriage, so the, the seventh commandment, um, is, exists to uh, the, the, the adultery, the, the, you know, the breaking apart of the marriage destroys the security and identity that children so desperately need. What do children need to thrive? Predictability. They need that sense of they know what's going to happen when they wake up in the morning. So it's a security and a predictability. And the seventh commandment is all about protecting little ones. It's about protecting the, the little ones so that you can have a generation that rises and is strong and is able to, to carry on uh, the, mission and the, peop- the, the mission of the people of God. But there's an even more important reason for, for the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment was not only there to, pr- to protect uh, this idea of security identity, the seventh commandment reflects, are you ready for this? It reflects the very character of God. It is so important to see this. Behind the seventh commandment is a sacred commitment, a promise that God has made. See, unlike, I'm going to mention this several times here, unlike, and I've said this before, unlike any other God in the ancient Near Eastern world, Yahweh, Israel's God, was a God of promises. He was a God of faithfulness. God's commitment to his people, it was a commitment that reveals his character. That is to say, behind the precept of the seventh commandment is the notion of a promise, that God has promised his people his presence. I will be with you. And not only has he promised his presence, and well, in promising his presence, he promises his protection. He promises to be unwaveringly reliable and infinitely resourceful. See, he can undo anything. Think about that. 
He can undo anything. See, together, this unparalleled reliability and this resourcefulness capture who he is in his very heart. That he is a God of infinite resourcefulness. He can undo anything. A God of perfect reliability. And those come together to form the very heart of who God is, the thrice holy one. There's no one like him. No one is committed. No one is capable. So Yahweh is fundamentally Fundamentally, one who is about fidelity. And hence the power of the promise of his presence. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, what? They comfort me. Why? Because he's there, he's committed, and he's protecting. Later in Isaiah, uh, uh, God says to his people, when you pass through the fire, I will be with you. His presence implies that he's pleased with us and that he will protect us. Recall Jesus when he was baptized. We hear, we hear the, heavens part, the heavens part and we hear a voice from heaven saying, with you I am well pleased. You are my son. With you I am well pleased. And that notion of pleasure and presence implies this idea, I'm with you, I'm on your side, I will, I will walk with you and I will ensure your success. Earlier I mentioned as we began to start the service, uh, the discussion I had with a, a petite young woman who spoke about how she walked at night in the darkness and, and she felt safe. She was not free of threats. There was still darkness. There were still potential enemies. There were still, there were still those. She was still in the valley of this place where there were threats, but she it's not the absence of threats. It's the presence of one who can protect and more precisely, to the presence of one who can undo anything, who can bring life out of death, who can bring blessing out of curse, who can bring intimacy out of conflict. And here's the thing, gang. There's nothing that kills relationships more than fear. Fear kills relationships. Because fear, fear always, always, always leads to control. And control is the opposite of vulnerability. And you, without vulnerability, you will never have intimacy. Never. And so that the very heart of the marriage relationship is this covenantal idea of a God who says to his people, I will be with you. Don't be afraid. Keep walking. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't give up. See, apart from this notion of a covenant commitment from a God who is able to do anything, to undo anything, marriage makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And that's why our culture is giving up on it, because it doesn't know the God who gave the seventh commandment. It doesn't believe that there is one who can undo anything. It doesn't believe in the notion of complete commitment. It's never seen it. And God's people, less and less, are losing sight of this, this God who's committed to them and who is capable of doing all things. And so they, too, are giving up on marriage. And therefore, fewer, fewer and fewer people are seeing examples of marriages that last beyond 8 to 10 years, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of marriage. So let me ask this question. What is marriage? What is marriage? Basic to the Christian view of marriage is the concept of what's called one flesh union. A union created by promises. 
If you want to, just turn to page 845 in your pew Bible, Matthew 19. This is Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Jesus gives, his, gives us his definition of marriage. Because before I talk about infidelity, I mean, we can basically define infidelity by talking about what marriage is. Okay? So once we know what marriage is, it will be very easy to talk about the idea of adultery and infidelity. Again, this is page 845 in your, pew, your blue pew Bible. Uh, it's, it's Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. <coughs> Excuse me. We re- Jesus says these words, Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. See that this repeated idea of one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate, let no one separate. So for Jesus, this one flesh marriage union, listen to this, it is intended, I understand there's going to be, we're talking about intent here. We're not talking about how the way that marriages always are, they always go. We're talking about how it was designed to be. The marriage union is first and foremost forever. Got that? The first aspect of marriage is that, is that it is first and foremost forever. It is not for now. It's forever. They are no longer two, but one. Do you see that sense of permanence? There's a, there's a transition that's been made fundamentally from being, at one time they were two, but now they are one. So marriage is first and foremost forever. When we marry, we say, I promise not to go. I'm not going to go. I promise not to give up. See, for me and Sarah and our marriage, boy, I, I wish I could stand up to you today and say, you know what, Sarah and I have had this amazing marriage. There's been nothing but bliss, and I'll show you how to do it. That has been so far from the truth. There have been so many times where Sarah and I have just wanted to give up. We've wanted to just go, just to get, just, just get in the car and just drive. And just start over. That's so true. And yet, when we, knew, we recognize that marriage union is forever, and so divorce is just, it's not e- leaving is not even an option. It's not even a possibility. And see, the thing is that divorce is contagious. Have you heard that before? Divorce is incredibly contagious. When you have divorce laws that are easy, when you have family and friends, people around you who are divorcing, it's a very contagious thing. Well, they did it. Maybe I will too. And it's this very contagious thing. But Jesus pushes back here. He says, marriage is first and foremost forever. The second thing that marriage is, it's not only forever, the second thing is marriage is formative. It's formative. That is to say, it's not formulaic. So often you hear this idea that, oh, we just don't, you know, chemistry. It's about this idea that two people click. That two people just, you know, they just, they come together, they find each other, you find that one, and suddenly it's it's this formula, and it all fits. But see, the thing is, one flesh, the notion, the idea of flesh, is that flesh is organic. And things that are organic, what do they do? They grow. So, so the promise of marriage is, is when, pro- when a marriage is forever, we say, I'm not going. But when a marriage is formative, we promise, we say, I promise to grow. When you get married, you are committing to change. Marriage and family is this massive learning laboratory. If we can learn, listen to this, if we can learn to love our siblings as children, and if we can learn to love our spouses as adults, we can learn to love even our enemies. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because when we, we live around these people, you get to know who they really are. They get to know who we really are. We realize that we are really hard to live with. 
No one else, our, our coworkers, our classmates, our neighbors, no one sees what we're really like. But our spouses do, our children do, our siblings do. And so if we recognize that marriage is formative, it's about growing and changing, we begin to realize that in marriage you discover your real self. If I had a $5 bill for every spouse who ever said to me, wow, I never knew what a jerk I was until I got married. I never knew what a complete witch I could be until I got married. I'd be a rich man. Because marriage reveals who we really are. If you want to be, un- be unaware of your true self, don't get, don't get in any serious relationships. Just remain isolated and alone. In fact, I remember my wife, and I have Sarah's permission to say this, she just, you know, very, you know, with tongue in cheek, she said, I never cussed until I got married. Right? Yeah? And then she said, but I never had a reason to cuss until I got married. Right? Isn't that the truth? Right? How many spouses, again, how many spouses have just said they discover who they really are in marriage? And that's so hard to do, but it's so good to do. Because it, it breaks us free of this notion that we're just such amazing, incredible people. And we are to be wrong that God makes us, and he makes us, with, with, as Juan was saying last week, with this incredible sense of dignity. God doesn't make junk. There is so much dignity to you. And yet, at the same time, there is so much depravity. That's what Juan was said, said so well last week. It was so good. And marriage helps us, this should help us to discover both of those things. You know, in a great marriage, is a marriage where both people are ready to grow. They're really ready to grow. My mom recently, she talks about my dad. My parents have been married for over 50 years. And my mom has a real respect. It's so beautiful. She has a real respect for my dad. Why? Because he's committed to growing. He can be incredibly moody. He wouldn't mind me saying this. He's in, he, can be, he can be this Eeyore person. You guys always like to live with Eeyore, right? Just someone who's just, just always down, he's depressed. You know? And yet he is committed to fighting that, to being upbeat, to being, to being hopeful, to being joyful. And so here's the thing, guys. Our spouses know us. They know us, but they're not us. Do you see that? They know us. In fact, Sarah knows me better than I know myself. And we all have blind spots. And the question is this. In your marriage, are you willing to hear difficult things from your spouse? Let me ask you a really difficult question. When was the last time that you accepted a very counterintuitive critique from your spouse? When they said, you know what, this is, you got an issue to this. And you're like, that's, what, what are you talking about? And then you thought, you know what, maybe I should take her word for it. Maybe I should take his word for it. How approachable, how willing are you to actually see your spouse? And again, they may not say it very well. They may say it out of pain. They may say it out of hurt. It may not feel like they're very concerned about you in the moment because they're hurting, because they're frustrated. Maybe they're even cynical because you don't listen regularly. Marriage is forever, and marriage is formative. And let me say this. Let me emphasize this so much here, guys. If you are to have that formative aspect to your marriage, it is so essential that your marriage be in community. Because you not only need your spouse to help you change, you need brothers and sisters, you need people in your life. When when couples come to me to the door and their marriage is struggling, I can almost guarantee you 
that there is a weakness in relationships outside the marriage. That the two of them have been trying to conduct their relationship in isolation from real community, real friendships, people who really know who they are. Listen, I can't tell you the number of times, you know, as a minister, you live like a thousand lives. You get to watch people live their lives. You get to watch some people, you come alongside them and you sit, you back them off the cliff and it's amazing. They just listen, they come off the cliff and they go on and live wonderful lives. There are other people, you come alongside them, they're on the cliff and you say, look, please do not jump. If you do this, this is how it's gonna go down. And they don't listen. They look at you and smile and jump right off the cliff. And you see people destroy their lives. I have heard so many divorced persons say, I didn't listen to my spouse. They told me over and over and over again that this was wrong with me. I thought they were full of it. I was too proud to listen. And they look back and they can never undo it. Don't get me wrong. I've seen a few marriage. I've seen a few people get remarried. I've seen pastors divorce and get remarried. I've seen that remarriage thing about. But so often there is this refusal to see marriage as formative. It's there to grow you. And they say, I didn't listen. In fact, I can even talk to you about widows and widowers who regret. They look back and they say, oh, I wish I had listened. They were right. I'm now seeing things about myself that they told me again and again, and I wouldn't listen to them. So according to Jesus, this one flesh union is forever. It's formative because flesh, if it's alive, it grows. It's formative. Third, marriage is for the other. It's for the other. It's not for me. It's for the other. One flesh, what do, what do bodies do? If one, what, is, what is flesh, what does body do? It doesn't just sit there. Bodies act, they do stuff, they go somewhere. To be one flesh is to have a mission. Does that make sense? It has a certain, dire- uh, it's, it, the, the marriage relationship, this is so important, the marriage relationship is for you, but it's not about you. Marriages that are all about themselves, about just creating this little island of oasis in suburbia about themselves, eventually languish. Because marriage is actually coming together to be, to use Dan Allender's wonderful words, marriage is to create people who are intimate allies. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Intimate allies. The idea is like, what would allies do? They fight together. Not with each other. They fight together against something bigger. Beautiful marriages have something that they are living for. Something that they're all about. That marriages are for the other. In the sense that they are other-caring other my marriage just comes together. We come together to, to care for others in our community, to care for others in our church. They are other caring and they are other creating. You have kids. You, you're the other caring. You're there for the others, for the sake of the future, bringing children to the world who are going to be meaningful members of society, giving members to their church and community. So let me review here. The marriage is forever saying, I promise not to go. Marriage is formative, saying, I promise to grow. And marriage is for the other, saying, I promise to give. I promise to give. And listen, for me and for Sarah, this at times has saved our marriage. See, if the marriage relationship is just for me, if I'm not happy, what am I going to do? I'm going to go. But see, that I realize that for our relationship in the moments where it just seems like this is intractable differences, we're like, you are worlds apart. And we're looking at each other saying, what planet are you from? It's in those moments when you, know, when you think you stop and go, what, this marriage is not about me. There are other people's lives at stake. Namely, whose? Our children's, but our churches. You know, the people that we've invested in. If Sarah and I's marriage imploded, 
How many people would hurt by that? How many people would just struggle with that? And so it's in those times we look and we think, man, this is just not working. But we've got to keep going for the sake of the mission. Because this marriage is not about us. It's not for us. It's, it's, I'm sorry, it's, about, it's for us, but it's not about us. So it saved our marriage. So first and foremost, marriage is forever. It's formative. It's for the other. And finally, it's not for all. Jesus says it's not for everybody. He talks about, he uses the word eunuchs. He talks about persons who are simply not called to singleness. And that's great. See, marriage is this idea that, that, that when we realize marriage is not for all, we're realizing that marriage is not essential. Marriage doesn't complete you. Marriage isn't, isn't this thing that if you're not married, well, you're just not really, you're not really whole. You're lacking in some way. That's, that's so odd. The, the, the American church has done a horrible job of holding this ideal of marriage as sort of this final place that you should get. If you are single and you, you, and you are part of the body of Christ, or you are whole. You don't need someone or something to fill you or fulfill you. That's just crazy. And so, so the marriage, so Jesus' definition is, says, I promise to guard my expectations. Because so often, young couples, especially today, they go into marriage with all these ideas of how it's going to be, and it's so amazing, and I found the one, and our chemistry is so amazing, and now I don't need to invest in any other relationship or anything else because I found the one. And it's just, it's a, and, and, and people, the people go into it with such incredible expectations that will almost inevitably be uh, disappointed. So with that definition of marriage, can you remember that? It's forever, it's formative, it's for the other, but it's not for all. So in light of that, let me just give me a few minutes here and I'll de- define infidelity. Infidelity is quite simply the, the abandonment of those three things. When you say, you know, it's not forever. No, it's not formative. I'm not going to grow. When you say, you know what, I'm just, it's not for the other. This is for me. When we abandon those promises, I'm not going to grow. I probably will go. And I'm not going to give. That is what leads, those are the underlying symptoms that lead to infidelity. And let me say this. That in the Old Testament, there are two words, two Hebrew words, that speak of unfaithfulness. The first one is the one used in Deuteronomy 5 in the, in the Seventh Commandment. It speaks of commission. Infidelity as commission. It's when you go outside the relationship into a third party. That's what you and I classically think of in terms of infidelity. It's adultery. Okay? Now listen, is what I'm about to say, if you've been ignoring everything so far, I want you to hear this because it's so important. Because it's not, it's, you don't see it in the marriage literature, you don't see it in marriage sermons. This is so, un- I, when I discovered this, it blew my mind. The second word that's used to describe adultery or infidelity in the Hebrew, te- in the Hebrew Old Testament is a word that speaks not of external commission, but internal omission. That infidelity includes one spouse just shutting down. It can be translated in various ways. It's not, it's, it's, it's the sin of omission. It can be translated as to abandon. It can be translated as to reject. It can be translated as failure to acknowledge. I'm just going to pretend like you don't really exist. Like you don't really matter. It is a form of neglect. It is saying, you know what? You're the ball and you know, you, you've got me, you're stuck with me, and now I can do whatever the hell I want. That is a form, brothers and sisters, of infidelity. 
when we just give up. It's a form of neglect. And you know, scholars today, scholars of, um, of trauma, you know, those who, who, who uh, study things like PTSD and stuff like that, trauma, they look at trauma, and there's this general rubric of trauma, and underneath that rubric is both abuse of various kinds, verbal and sexual abuse, but also under, underneath that rubric of trauma is what? Neglect. In fact, I'm not going to take the time, but I can quote to you world-class scholars in trauma who will speak of neglect as being just as deadly, just as harmful. Just to the complete, I'm going to pretend like you're not worthy of my time or energy, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to live with you, but I'm not actually going to invest in you. I'm not actually going to celebrate you. I'm not going to enjoy you. Listen to this quote. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's so worth it because it's so important. This is from one, one, this is one, from one scholar who's, who, has a, who, is, uh, who has investigated or researched uh, betray, the idea of betrayal uh, in just in, in extensively. This is what she says. Listen to this. The word betrayal evokes experiences of cheating, lying, breaking a confidence, failing to defend us to someone else who gossip, who's gossiping about us, and not choosing us over other people. These behaviors are certainly betrayals, but they're not the only form of betrayal. If I had to choose the form of betrayal, this is still quoting, if I had to choose the form of betrayal that emerged most frequently from my research and that was most dangerous in terms of corroding trust, I would say disengagement. Disengagement. I'm going to stop. I'm going to withdraw. I'm just going to withdraw. When the people we love or with whom we have a deep connection stop caring, stop paying attention, stop investing, stop fighting for the relationship, trust begins to slip away and hurt starts to seep in. Disengagement triggers shame and our greatest fears. The fears of being abandoned, the fears of being unworthy, the fears of being unlovable. What can make this covert betrayal so much more dangerous than something like a lie or an affair is that we can't point to the source of our pain. There's no event, no obvious evidence of brokenness. It can feel crazy-making. Do you hear that? Gang, we all understand the Bible defines infidelity both as the proactive going out and extramarital affair. We all know that. I don't need to emphasize that. But it also defines infidelity as simply disengagement. It's just giving up, going through the motions. Listen, we need to be scared of adultery. We really do. Let me say it, let me say that more correctly. We need to be scared of infidelity. If you're not tempted to go out and have an affair, you may be tempted just, just to just cruise in your relationship and cause the other person to go out and have an affair. If we're tempted to have an affair, if we're tempted to go outside ourselves, we need to be committed. We need to stop. We need to get help. And listen, let me close with this. Listen, I know marriages that have recovered and recovered amazingly from adultery. Not only the extramarital affair, but also the internal just, just giving up. And I would love to walk with you. I will pray with you. I will hurt with you. Your elders are here to do anything that we can to help you in your marriage. 
So just very, I know we're a little long on time here. Let me just briefly share a few things that help about make, make a great marriage. We're going to do this really quickly. What makes for a great marriage? First, they all begin with share. Share. A great marriage is share faith. Sharing your faith is so important with one another. Sharing your, 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 your devotion to Christ. They share faith. Secondly, they share failures. Great marriages share their failures. They remain vulnerable and they say, you know, I have failed you, I have failed others in these ways. You're sharing your failures. Great marriages share faith. They share failures. They share their feelings. You actually divulge, again, it's an act of vulnerability. This is what I said earlier about the idea of fear. Now, fear leads to control, and control is the opposite of vulnerability. And if you're not vulnerable, you will never have intimacy. And so real marriages share their faith. They share their failures. They share their feelings. And they share a focus. They share a future. That's what it's about mission. The idea that it's not about me. There's a certain focus. What is this marriage going after? What are we about? That's why you see marriages often struggle when the kids finally leave. The kids are out of the house. They're empty nesters. And suddenly that was their mission. That was their focus. It's like, well, well what now? What's our focus? And, and you need to redefine. You need to rethink. What, what is going to be our future? What is that focus? And then finally, great marriages share fellowship. They're not alone. They're actually in the body of Christ. So they share faith, they share their failures, they share feelings, they share a common focus, and they share a common fellowship. They're not on an island all by themselves. And all of those things together, all those sharing, will create a deep and abiding reservoir of intimacy that will, that will shield you from adultery. So brothers and sisters, as we go to the, consider the Lord's Supper, I want you to know that Jesus that Jesus was deeply, deeply betrayed. He was utterly betrayed. And if you had, that has been your story, if that has been part of your marriage at one point or another, whether a third party or one, part, one person just shutting down, Jesus knows deeply what it is like to be betrayed. And yet he was faithful. He was faithful unto death on a cross. And that's exactly what this meal is all about. It is about one who said in these words, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. It shows that your God is faithful to the very end, faithful to the point of death on a cross. And this meal is a meal for those who have betrayed. It's a meal for those who have been unfaithful. It's a meal for those who've gone outside the relationship. It's a meal for those who've shut down. But it's a meal for those who are ready, who are saying, no, I am going to fight that impulse. I am going to surrender my life. All that I am, my marriage, all that I am in every aspect of my life, I want to follow him. And yes, I may fail grievously, but that's the course. Like I said at the very beginning of our service, Jesus did not come to, didn't, Jesus did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners, but he came to call them to repentance. Are you on board? Have you surrendered? Have you given up control? That's what this meal is for. It's for those who have surrendered. Let's pray together and let's go to the meal.